นะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสามิเราจะต่อไปด้วยบทเรียนชื่อว่าการเข้าถึงความสัมพันธ์ของสมบัติของผู้เป็นผู้ใช้ในการเข้าถึงความสัมพันธ์ของสมบัติของผู้ที่ใช้ในการเข้าถึงความสัมพันธ์ของสมบัติ All natural processes, including the dynamics of karma, are possible because things are impermanent and insubstantial. This fact may be at odds with how people co commonly feel. Yet, if things were permanent, stable, and possessed a solid core, none of the above laws of nature <coughs> would hold true. Also, these laws confirm that there is no first cause for things, no creator God. Conditioned things arise dependent on causes, and they are interrelated. They have no fixed core. A bed, to take a simple example, is composed of various parts which have been assembled following a prescribed plan. There exists no essential substance of the bed apart from these components. Taking them apart, the bed no longer exists. There exists merely a notion of bed, quote unquote, which is a thought in the mind. Even particular notions do not exist in isolation, but are connected to other concepts. The notion of a bed, quote unquote, only has significance in relation to the notions of lying down, a level plane, position, space, etc. People's awareness and understanding of particular designations is linked to their understanding of the relational factors of that particular entity. But when recognition of the object has been made, habitual attachment in the form of craving and grasping leads the person to be convinced of the object's substantiality. The object is separated from its relational context, and true discernment of the object is obstructed. Selfishness and possessiveness come to the fore. So the example that uh, is, um, let's say, one of the most commonly quoted ones from the the uh, suttas is the Buddha. Uh, Talked about a chariot, um, like a, uh, a, a little cart they would use in military uh, operations, so that they're pulled by a horse or a couple of horses, and they would stand on a platform and have a have two wheels. And it was a sort of military device that was that was uh, in common use in the Buddha's time and through much of uh, of um, history. And so he would say, and he was a, a kshatriya, a warrior noble. So that the, the parts of a chariot would have been something that he he grew up learning about and how to build chariots. And so he uh, he uses that as an example, like a vehicle or a wagon, saying if you take apart the wheels and the the uh, the, the the base of it and the axle and the 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 pole that the um, the horses are, are are harnessed to, then you have these pieces of wood. But there, there's no essential chariot if you take all the parts. Um, away from each other, you've just got you know wood and metal and leather and and so on, and there isn't any essential chariot there. And uh, one of the um, 
the dialogues in the, um, uh, the beginning of the connected discourses as a collection of, of teachings, dialogues between Mara and various enlightened nuns when he, Mara comes along to try and confuse these um, Arahant nuns and uh, one of them, I think the very last one in that Mara Sangita, uh, I think is the third or the fourth um, chapter of the connected discourses um, and then the example that the, that the nun gives is about a chariot and saying, you know, if you take all the component parts uh, away from each other, you ha- there's no essential chariot. And saying, you know, this body too, this uh, what we call a human being, it's just these these parts. There isn't any essential person here. This is just a convention of of, of thought and speech. So this runs quite counter to the European um, philosophy, and particularly Plato. Uh, my limited knowledge of Greek philosophy was that Plato talked about the, what he called the plane of ideal forms. So there's like an essential chariot, kind of a primordial chariot, and all chariots partic- participate in that primordial uh, chariot existing in this plane of ideal forms. So every chair is somehow participating in that ideal form of you know the, the, the archetypal chair, that all chairs are participating in that chairness. And so the Buddha's uh, uh, approach to this is radically different. Say no, <laughs> there isn't. There isn't any essential chair. There's no plane of ideal forms. It's, these are just uh, mental constructions that we we create. We we designate chair into being because it's, it's it's a useful device for these bodies shaped the way they are. But there isn't any essential chairness other than what has been brought uh, to, into being because of the. Uh, you know, say human activity, the use of language, and the the, the manipulation of various elements to say chair. So, and then the way that the Venerable Payuta here is talking about um, uh, habitual attachment in the form of craving and grasping leads the person to be convinced of the object's substantiality. Say, well, yeah, but it's a chair, Ajahn. I mean, it is you're sitting on it? It's actually there. Like, well, yes. <laughs> This sort of conventional, um, collect, uh, this, uh, conventionally speaking, you can call it a chair, and these elements have come together in this particular form. But the point that's being made is there isn't any essential chairness other than the uh, the elements that have come together. As mentioned above, things do not have a first cause, quote unquote, or or original source. Tracing back the causes and conditions ad infinitum one still cannot find a first cause. There's a strong impulse in people, however, to seek an original source for phenomena, and as a consequence, they assign undue importance to particular entities. The impulse to find a source conflicts with the truth, and the notions associated with whatever is taken as a source uh, become a form of perceptual aberration, sanya vipalasa. People abandon their inquiry into causality too soon. A correct investigation would go on to inquire into the cause of what is being taken as the source and conclude that this line of inquiry is endless. Things exist in mutual mutual dependence and therefore there is no first cause. Indeed, one can pose the question, why is it necessary for things to originate from a primal source? It's also one of the interesting things. Most religious forms have some kind of creation myth of you know, because ever since we've, as human beings, we started gathering around campfires and, and uh, living together in, in our little uh, tribal groups. So where do we come from? How does this all happen? And you know, how's, how does this thing work? Um, 
uh, what's our, our origin, our source, where do we come from? So that's a primordial question that has arisen in the human uh, society from you know, hundred, a couple of hundred thousand years ago at least, if not earlier. Um, and um, so most religious forms, whether they are, uh, say, um, from anywhere around the world, they have some kind of creation story. And one of the interesting things that, even though um, uh, I was quoting that that whole uh, section of the Sangyuta, the without discoverable beginning, uh, chapter fifteen, and then also the Achinteya, the the um, that the, the uh, a first cause is not um, is one of the imponderables or the ultimate beginning of things. Um, you do have uh, in the Diganikaya, the long discourses, the Buddha talks about how a universe comes into being. So it's, it's, there is a creation story, uh, but it's almost like, oh, well, when a universe comes into being, then it happens like this. But it's, it's almost, Buddhism is almost unique in the creation story not being particularly significant in terms of, of the teaching. So that uh, Aganya Sutta in the Diganikaya, the long, the long discourses the, on the origin of things, um, it's not given particular prominence in, in Buddhist countries, uh, in, in Thailand or Sri Lanka or in China or Tibet. You know, it's there as part of the story, but it's also, um, it's, it's a, a, in the spirit of, if you want to know how a universe comes into being, it's like this. And it, uh, then, and it starts off with saying, uh, uh, after the ending of a kalpa and before the beginning of another kalpa, most beings are born in the Abhasara Brahma realm or in higher realms than that. So that after there's been a big crunch and a collapse of the universe, then all beings spend time up in the higher Brahma realms. And then when a new universe begins, then um, different planes of existence come into being and then the beings drop out of the high Brahma realms and bop, 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 appear in the the, uh, the the lower realms and have shorter lifespans and engage in, in coarser activities like you know eating and living in houses and such like so that uh, it's if you're interested in the creation story it's it's there uh, the Aganya Sutta um, the origin in the Diganikaya uh, long discourses but uh, it's uh, it's one of the things that is as I said is is kind of striking it's like you know, if you want to know how a universe begins, this is how it happens. But it's it's not a, a particularly significant part of, of the teaching. It's just saying that you know this is this is how these things evolve, um, and the emphasis is always on uh, what to do here and now with this this uh, this mind and this this life of ours. That's what's really given the the prominence in, in the in the Buddha's teaching. So, any thoughts, questions? Okay, to continue. Ajahn, yes. May I please ask you, um, the senses, are they based on the mind? Because um, how to bring into better understanding this karmic appearance, which was accumulated from beginningless time, so actually our body allows us to differentiate um, the qualities of the element. Which, uh, and this impression manifests as the mental image. And actually, what I believe, it's more this mental image. And also, what gives the limit that we are perceiving just, um, just what gives the limit to perception as well. 
It's a small question. <laughs> um, well, if I'm understanding what you're saying, what, what we experience is the mind's uh, representation of, say, sight and sound, so that the light goes into the eye, hits the, the, the cells, uh, the, the receptor cells at the back of the eye, an electrical impulse goes down the optic nerve into the brain, whoop, lights up certain regions of the visual cortex, and then the activity of the visual cortex is what what you see, what I see, is that how the, the mind. So that uh, what we see is dependent on the sense organ. Um, in, in the, the human realm, you know, we have these particular senses, um, but then it's the mind's um, representation of that is what is experienced. So you, it's talking about Brahma realms, you have certain Brahma realms that are, and there are the are, are rupa, that they are, the beings in those realms, they have no rupa, there's no, no form, no material form, they're just mind alone. So they don't have eyes or ears, and you know, they don't have a body, they're just mind. But those beings uh, are still able to perceive, but I, I, I'm not a Brahma deity, so I can't speak from direct experience. But my understanding is that even for a, a, a being in the Arupa Brahma realms, uh, those formless realms, they would still be experiencing the, the mind's representation of of the experiential field, even though it might have a very very broad range, and it wouldn't be seeing or hearing in the same way that that we do, but it would be the, that mind representing its perceptions of of reality. Um, that's what would be known. Is that answering your question? Yes, it is. So then the sense organs are based in the mind. Well, the sense organs are part of the body. But the activity of them uh, is, um, say, uh, is uh, manifests in the mental realm. So the eye is a physical object, right? It's rupa. But the activity of the eye and the the, the functioning of the eye, the result of that is the mental formation of seeing. Sanya. Everything was created by the mind. It's uh, <laughs> depends on what you mean by everything, and what you mean by created. I mean, the, so everything that we experience uh, in this moment are uh, patterns of mental activity: eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body, mind consciousness. Chaku vinyana, sota vinyana, gana vinyana, jiva vinyana, kaya vinyana, mano vinyana. That's what is experienced. Woven together, it makes this. So, my the, all we all any of us have ever known is mind, really, <laughs> which is a bit mind-boggling. But that's all we've ever known. Okay. And yeah, I, I also acknowledge a lot of this is quite mind-boggling. But we shall continue. Okay. The belief in a creator God is equally at odds with nature. This belief stems from the observation and common assumption that human beings are responsible for producing things like tools, implements, and crafts. Therefore, everything in the universe must also have a creator. So like somebody invented this chair. This chair was created because of 
somebody invented the concept of a chair and put this one together. So there's that basic assumption, or oh, therefore the universe must have had a, an agent who did that creating too. The logic of this reasoning, however, is flawed. People separate the act of production from the natural context of conditionality. In fact, human production is only one aspect of conditionality. In the act of production, humans are one factor among many in a conditional process, all of which combine to reach a desired result. The distinction here uh, from a purely material process is that mental factors, for example desire, accompanied by intention also play a role. But these mental factors must combine with other factors in a conditional process to bring about a desired end. For example, when building a house, a person influences other factors to bring about completion. If humans were above the conditional process, they could build a house out of thin air, but this is impossible. Creation, therefore, is not separate from conditionality, and since all conditioned things exist as parts of an ongoing causal process, a creator god plays no role at any stage. So, uh, so maybe um, to, to use a bit more so everyday language, it's like saying, "Well, I, I, yeah, I like to be independent. I'm an independent person. I, you know, I like to, uh, I like to be independent." Or, uh, but uh, try being independent from oxygen, <laughs> and uh, you know, it can manage that for about five minutes, and you you, you keel over. So, uh, and I remember uh, when I was in the in, in the states once. Um, uh, I was staying at a layperson's house, and somebody made the made the comment to him, um, "You know, well, you're independently wealthy." And he said, "No, I'm not. <laughs> the, uh, that 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 doesn't really have any meaning." That he said, "There's no such thing as being independently wealthy. It's like you know, our lives are dependent on our health. And you know, if you keel over, you know, and and die from an aneurysm and or a heart attack, you know." Where is that wealth? <laughs> Who does that belong to? Um, the the bank can crash. The, the money can become worthless. Um, the uh, uh, so that um, no, I was quite. He obviously had strong feelings about <laughs> about that. But I thought that's yeah, a good point because we use those kind of terms. Like I like to be independent. I don't like to be dependent on anyone. But yes, there is that feeling. Uh, we can say, yeah, that's understandable on a sort of social level, but. In terms of Dhamma, in terms of nature, you know, we are all really, <laughs> these lives are very dependent on, on oxygen, on food, on, on uh, you know, a huge variety of different uh, factors that, that have to come together and, and work together to, to sustain these lives. And, uh, and so that uh, the, uh, the recognition that we, we, we live in an interdependent relational state, physically and socially and mentally, um, I think it's far more helpful and skillful. So it's handling those interdependencies, which is a very long word, uh, and setting up a skillful relationship to the things that we're dependent upon, like your know, food, our shelter, our clothing, our relationships. So the way that monastery life is, is structured and the way that the Buddha's teaching encourages simplicity, frugality, fewness of needs, um, honesty, kindness, harmlessness, you know, all of these, um, say, these structures that are very much part of, of the Buddhist way of life, they're to do with respecting those dependencies that we have. You know, we, we need to, we need to eat food to stay, stay alive, but we try to just, 
uh, take as much uh, as food as we need to maintain the health of the body and not for uh, distraction and uh, and just uh, sensory pleasure um, we try to to have relationships with each other that are honest and kind and, and harmless and, and and benevolent so that uh, we are uh, so respecting that relational state uh, you know, none of us are I- independent even if we we um, Sort of live alone, you know, uh, in uh, in a physically remote place. Still, people uh, who know us think about us. People know, oh, you know, Ajahn Amaro is over there, and you know, living off in that that, that place. Or uh, we are interconnected, even if we're geographically separated from each other. We we remember each other. We we are related to each other. We we're connected to each other. We are concerned with each other. Um, and so that that skillful, uh, rather than thinking of that independence in terms of um, the conditioned uh, the conditioned world, uh, uh, it's uh, to in a way to establish the skillful dependencies and interrelationships is a lot of the, the focus of our lives, how we live and the the, the structures that we have in our life. Independence. Uh, which does come up in the Buddha's teaching, where he says, uh, when, say, someone is, um, has, uh, a being has realized the level of stream entry, one of the phrases that's used for that is, such and such a, a one has become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. So that means that this mind doesn't need uh, input from, from others in order to, uh, say, confirm its certainty or to be, re- to be um, reassured or to... Um, uh, to say back up the quality of, of understanding that that kind of independence is a a, a way of talking about the uh, the level of, of insight uh, the attunement of the heart to to dhamma so that it's uh, it's not requiring uh, input from other uh, from outside in order to uh, affirm that that realization to to affirm that uh, attunement um, so that it's a the, the terminology of independence is there in the mixture, but it's talking about uh, in terms of attitude and the level of, of, of insight or, or understanding. Does that make sense? Is that confusing? Okay. Do speak up. You know, I can fill the I can fill the air with noise very easily for long periods of time. So these readings are for you, not for me. So if there's anything that's uh, Helpful to ask, please. Uh, don't be shy. Okay. To continue. Another line of reasoning that contradicts the truth and is similar to the idea of a first cause, quote-unquote, is the idea that in the beginning there was nothing. This idea is connected to and stems from a belief in self. The identification with composite parts that comprise an individual form. A person establishes a notion of self and attaches to this notion. In addition, they may believe that originally the self did not exist, but rather came into being at a later time. This limited way of thinking, of getting stuck on an object and not having a fluid outlook on things, is an attachment to conventional labels and a misunderstanding of conventional truth. It lies behind the need to find a first cause or a creator God as the source of all phenomena giving rise to such conflicting ideas as how can something immortal produce something that is mortal, or how can transient things spring from the eternal. 
apropos the causal interrelated flow of phenomena, there is no need to speak of an enduring or temporary self unless one is referring to conventional truth, samuti satya. There's a typo there. Uh, again, one can ask, why is it necessary to have nothing before something can exist? In any case, speculation on, on such topics as a first cause, quote-unquote, and a creator god is considered to be of little value in Buddha Dhamma because it's irrelevant to the practical application of the teachings for bringing about true spiritual well-being. Even though these philosophical considerations can lead to a broad world view, as shown above, they can be passed over since a focus on practical application leads to the same benefits. Attention here, therefore, should be on applying the teachings to everyday life. So uh, that uh, in the the other edition of this um, of this book, that whole chapter was called uh, "Interpreting Dependent Origination," and uh, the the next chapter is called "Man and Nature" uh, in the other edition. So uh, again, he sort of delves into these philosophical considerations and theistic interpretations. Um, but then, as he says at the end. You know, these uh, speculation on such topics um, or putting a lot of time onto that is not really uh, very helpful because what's most important and useful with these teachings is to focus on how they can uh, uh, apply the teachings to everyday life. Well, and maybe another interesting, if you are, <laughs> one of the... the uh, 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 interesting suttas that relates to the uh, atheistic worldview. Um, again, in the Diga Nikaya, it's in the the um, the first discourse, the sutta number one in the long discourses, and it's a um, it's called the uh, um, the uh, Brahmajala Sutta, the the um, the Brahma's net the Brahmajala Sutta. And in that, the Buddha outlines 62 kinds of views that people, philosophical and spiritual views and opinions that, that people have. And uh, what, uh, there's a very, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in there. But uh, one of the things that the, the Buddha uh, talks about is how uh, the, the idea of a, of a creator of the universe uh, comes into being and how there are, you know, how in human groups, that's a, a, a popular idea. Um, so uh, I, I forget exactly where in the sutta it is. It's a very long sutta, but somewhere amongst those sixty-two, <laughs> there what it uh, uh, what it describes is that uh, at the beginning of a universe, when a universe has come into being, as he says, most beings are born in the Abhasara Brahma realm, and then one being drops out of the Abhasara Brahma realm and appears in in a lower Brahma realm, and that being having appeared there. Um, looks, you know, quote unquote, looks around and says, oh, yeah, uh, uh, I, uh, I am alone here. I'm the, I'm the only being that exists. I'm alone in the universe. And then, and then the thought arises, uh, would that other beings arose in this realm? And then, boop, 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 uh, other beings drop down from the, uh, the higher realms and appear in that lower realms. Oh, I had the thought, may other beings appear? And they appeared. I must have created them. And so then, the, the beings who appeared afterwards say, oh, well, this being was here first, and we have appeared after this one, so this, this being must have created us. And the Buddha said then, when uh, beings who've uh, been, uh, have appeared in that way, when they come into the human world, 
then they have the disposition to believe in a creator deity because that's what they experienced in the in the Brahma world. Whether that's true or not, I can't say from personal experience, but I, I know it's truly there in the sutta. <laughs> that much I can say for sure. And uh, but it is it's interesting that uh, oh yeah, that's a because of a vestigial kind of partial memory or some sort of ancient memory of that that having happened and then assuming oh this this being was there first so this must have been our our source our creator and then also is under the assumption that i am the creator i was here first i willed you into being and so then you all appeared so i am the i am the 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 source of of life then that then creates a the the tendency to see things in that way i'm sure those who have a theistic perspective on life would be not pleased with that interpretation <laughs> but uh, well, it's not put out there to be insulting or disrespectful but it does make a lot of sense to me that, to consider that kind of a, of a model but if you want to look it up for yourself if you hunt through the Brahmajala Sutta then you'll you will find it there somewhere I didn't fish it out this evening but, uh, so that's the end of that um, uh, what, what is the that uh, that chapter in volume three. But so before we go on to the next part, any questions, thoughts, reflections, memories of life in Brahma worlds? <laughs> okay, so let's carry on. As mentioned earlier, human beings are comprised of the five aggregates. Nothing exists separately from these these aggregates, dwelling either inside them or out. Nothing owns or controls the aggregates and governs life. The five aggregates function according to dependent origination. They're part of the interrelated flow of conditions. All of the components in this process are unstable. They all arise and pass away and they condition further arising and decay. The interdependency of the components enables there to be a causal process and continual stream of formations. The five aggregates are marked by the three universal characteristics, tilakana. They are, one, they are impermanent and unstable, subject to constant arising and passing away, anicchata. Two, they are continually oppressed by arising and dissolution. They inevitably produce suffering for one who engages with them by way of ignorance and attachment, dukkata. And three, they are void of any substantial essence or self that is able to dictate things according to desire, anatata. Also, that um, it's maybe helpful to to consider that, um, uh, say, uh, when when the Buddha uses the term sunyata in in the Pali uh, um, tradition, sunya, empty or sunyata, emptiness. Uh, the most common definition is empty of self and what belongs to a self. So that the in in the uh, Pali canon, then uh, emptiness and, and selflessness, sunyata and anatta, are very closely related to each other. They are almost not identical, but very very closely connected. So when uh, when uh, you know, the Buddha is asked, empty, uh, empty, empty, things are said to be empty. Em- uh, how are they empty? Empty of self and what belongs to a self is uh, the common definition of that. So it's usually empty of self rather than empty of of substance is the, the, the usual um, of, uh, sense that the, the word is, is employed. 
These five aggregates, perpetually shifting and inherently insubstantial, follow their own nature and proceed according to the flow of interrelated conditions. Unawakened human beings, however, make the mistake of resisting this flow by identifying with certain phenomena. They then want this imagined fixed entity, quote-unquote, to last or proceed in a, in, a, in a desired fashion. At the same time, the eddying currents within the flow of conditions conflict with desire, causing stress and increasing desire and attachment. When desire is thwarted, frustrated or obstructed, the struggle to establish control and stabilize an identity becomes more intense, which results in ever greater disappointment, anguish and despair. As you know, Lumpur Chao was very, very skilled at coming up with uh, succinct um, definitions or ways of expressing this. So that if you seek for satisfaction in that which can't satisfy, you have to be disappointed. If you seek for security in that which is insecure, you, you have to be disappointed. If, if you seek for certainty in that which is uncertain, then you, you have to be disappointed, which is a very sort of simple and straightforward way of, of expressing that. A dim understanding of truth may lead a person to conclude that change is inescapable and that one's cherished self may disappear. But this consideration only leads to firmer attachment intertwined with deep-seated anxiety. Such a state of mind is comprised of three, defile, three defilements. Avijja, ignorance of the truth, the mistaken belief in a self. Tanha, the wish for this surmised self to be or not to be in a particular way. And upadana, grasping, binding this self onto things. These defilements are deeply embedded in the mind and they control the behavior of human beings overtly or covertly. They mold people's personalities and shape their destiny. It's fair to say they are the source of suffering for all unawakened people. So those three, avicca, ignorance, tanha, craving, and upadana, grasping. So those are the, the three troublemakers uh, that uh, are sort of reliably the cause of, of diffi- uh, alienate, alienation, uh, dukkha, and uh, the dis-ease of the, of the jitta. The preceding paragraphs have revealed a conflict between two distinct processes. One, the course of life that is governed by the law of the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha and anatta, which is a fixed law of nature, it manifests as birth, aging and death, both in an ordinary and in a deeper sense. So in, a, in an ordinary sense, like a, a, a human life beginning and proceeding and ending, and then in a deeper sense, like the momentary um, say, uh, interpretation or the momentary uh, description of, of dependent origination, so that uh, a, the, the, uh, a mind state or a sensation arising, living, doing its thing and then fading away. So that's what he means by um, both in an ordinary and in a deeper sense. And then second, the ignorance of the course of life, the mistaken belief in a stable, enduring self and subsequent attachment accompanied by fear and anxiety. The conflict is between laws of nature and a mistaken self-view, between the causal dynamics in nature and people's desires. People construct a self which then impedes the flow of nature. When people's desires are unsound or thwarted, the result is suffering in its various manifestations. 
This results in a life of ignorance, attachment, enslavement, resistance to nature, and misery. So uh, the, this um, uh, this same kind of distinction uh, I like to talk about in terms of a like a self-centered perspective on the one hand, or a nature-centered perspective on, on the other. And so, as you said, the conflict is between laws of nature and mistaken self-view. So when we have a, a nature a nature-centered perspective then we recognize that everything that's born is going to die one day you know that uh, that not everybody is going to uh, is going to appreciate us and, and like us and not every effort that we make is going to be successful some things that we do are going to be disapproved of by people some of them will be approved and a lot will be be ignored um, so when we, uh, we we approach life from a self-centered perspective or you know, ego-centered perspective, then uh, we find ourselves afraid of death, afraid of, of loss, or being afraid of criticism or rejection, uh, afraid of, of, uh, of failure. Um, we find ourselves, uh, you know, uh, say, <clears throat> wanting everyone to like us or appreciate us and, and love us all the time, um, and so that that self-centered perspective is setting the mind up for a lot of disappointment and difficulty and when there's a, a dhamma-centered or nature-centered perspective then there's a far more of a quality of of adaptability so that there's a, a readiness to recognize that you know whatever begins ends we, that uh, whatever we we own that owning can only be partial or conditional it can't be anything absolute that the, you know that life and this experience of this mind this body and the 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 experiential field of of life is necessarily in a constant state of of uh, of flux and is uh, fundamentally uncertain what things are going to change into so that uh, that that's a, a, a say is the essential contrast and when we talk about stream entry um it's, I would say it's, that's substantially the the, the 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 change of perspective, the, the change of, of view, is letting go of of self view, sakayaditi, and then um, letting go of uh, of uh, the uh, attachment to sort of conventions and forms, and uh, the um, the kind of uh, way that the mind labels the world. So self view internally or self view externally, you can say. Uh, and then the the uh, letting go of doubt about recognizing well that's the path to to enlightenment seeing that that, that those three uh, self view doubt and um, attachment to conventions those are the first three uh, of the ten fetters and when those are are broken or let go of and they, those those fetters are not binding the 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 heart or limiting the heart then stream entry has been realized. So a simple way of, of thinking of that, or holding that, is uh, going from a, an ego-centered perspective, a self-centered perspective, to a, a nature-centered perspective, and recognizing, oh, right, that, that's, that's what it takes. The actual uh, training the mind to continually see in that way um, takes a lot more work, um, so that stream entry is just the, the first level of enlightenment, the first... The first stage, as it were, but and it's one of the reasons why the Buddha says one who is, uh, the, when the mind has reached that level of understanding, then there's uh, enlightenment is is guaranteed. There's in, uh, it's in Buddhist psychology says in in no more than seven lifetimes, uh, full enlightenment is is guaranteed, and uh, a being who has reached stream entry cannot fall into any of the, the lower realms. 
they can't be born as a, in the animal realm or the ghost realm or the hell realms and and so it's a way of of sort of recognizing that well once this has been seen it can't be unseen like once you learn how to ride a bicycle you can't unlearn how to ride a bicycle it's like the it's like a, a whole body learning it's like there's a the, the system knows it and sees it and feels it so it's not just a conceptual knowledge but it's a whole manner of of, uh, of seeing and understanding a whole manner of of relating to experience and so that that um uh, that shift of, of view uh, uh, from the self-centered habits to seeing things in terms of, of the laws of nature and uh, then that recognizing oh right <laughs> this is this is what it takes this is the way to go that's uh, i would say is uh, that uh, that going beyond doubt now, this is the path the path has still there's still more of the path to traverse to to uh, to be um, uh, to be followed but that uh, at that point there is no doubt that the, that's what the path is that's the that's the way that leads to a complete liberation conventionally speaking the second process uh, comprises two selves quote unquote first is the self or entity within which nature sorry within nature that changes according to causes and conditions although no no true self exists it's possible to separate and distinguish one natural dynamic or flow from others and for practical purposes one can assign a conventional label of self to each individual dynamic so i was using the example of the river gade as like yeah it's it's not one thing it's a uh, it's related to all the other water in the local area but it, you can say that's the gade river and it flows down that valley and uh, you can say you know this um this particular stream of conditions is called ajan amaro this one is tanbalado and uh, this is uh, uh, martin or this is uh, gina but it's just a name for a river you know there's uh, and the, what makes up the the the, the river moment to moment is constantly changing as uh, uh, another Greek philosopher Heraclitus who was a bit more close to the mark and I believe is even mentioned in the Pali canon uh, he gets an, in the name Iraka in the, the Pali canon who was a contemporary of the Buddha and the, the Buddha apparently um, speaks in praise of Iraka as philosophy of change so yes that is that's a reliable philosophy but he has not, uh, un, but he doesn't understand the nature of not self. But he's had insight into the quality of change. So Heraclitus famously, famously said, "You can't step into the same river twice, you know, because the river is—it's uh, not the same river. The river is constantly changing." So that uh, we can conventionally say you know, this being, but it's a—it's a, uh, a convenient fiction, like saying that's the, the Gade River. It's a a way of describing a particular pattern of of events but there's nothing fixed and solid and absolute uh, there but there so there is a river <laughs> in the bottom of the valley that tends to flow there the second is a false self a fixed entity which one imagines to be real and clings to with ignorance craving and grasping the first self the dynamic entity like the river uh, is not a cause for attachment but the second self um, which is superimposed on the first self is defined by attachment. So that is the river gate, Ajahn. It says it on the map, and everyone calls it the gate. It's uh, you know that's that's what it is. It, it, it that's 
it is a it is a river and it exists and it's called, and it is the gate that that is a yeah a permanent and uh, solid thing that is actually there so that uh, uh, this second kind of self uh, the fixed entity is imposed upon that first kind of dynamic fluid conventional uh, self <clears throat> that uh, so the the second self, which is superimposed on the first self, is defined by attachment and is inevitably undermined by the nature of the first self and thus causes suffering. So that the, the actuality of the river keeps betraying the fact that <laughs> it's in a constant state of change. You can't say it's there at all. And, and in other years, that river has dried up so that you, you actually don't... Uh, there's, a, there's a river bed, but there's no water in it. <laughs> There's a bridge going across, uh, but there's no, there's nothing underneath it except grass and watercress, and the, the water doesn't actually appear until you know, much further down the, the, the valley. So um, when it says it's inevitably undermined by the nature of the first self, that uh, you know, so well, I am this person, this is me, this is what I am, but then the the actuality of nature, the, the changing fluid uh, uh, quality of of um, what we call this being keeps undermining that sense of permanence and solidity, substantiality. A life of ignorance and attachment instills fear and anxiety in the heart, affects behavior and makes people unwitting slaves to their desires. It increases selfishness, a perpetual search for personal gratification, possessiveness and a lack of consideration for others. So that is really, and then in this little section, he's going into the, the four four kinds of clinging. So that's a definition of kamupadana. It's K long A M U P long A D A long A N A kamupadana, the uh, clinging to sense pleasure. In order to reinforce and affirm their desires, people latch onto and identify with those views, opinions, doctrines, belief systems, etc. <coughs> that meet the needs of and accord with desire. They cherish and cling to these views, etc., as if protecting their very selves. As a result, they build a barrier that prevents them from accessing the truth. They hide from the truth. This rigidity of mind means that their critical faculties are impaired, and it can give rise to obstinacy and uh, an inability to tolerate or listen to the views of others. So that's Dittupadana, or clinging to, to views. So that's a, a way that we shore up, and we kind of substant, make the, the feeling of I and me and mine uh, more solid is we have opinions. So, you know, I think this, or I feel that, or this is what, how I see it. And, um, and so uh, we cherish and cling to our views. We create an identity out of our views and opinions and what we, what we value, what we criticize, uh, what we're familiar with. And that is uh, a way of strengthening that. I, me, and my feeling, and then um, uh, naturally that leads to, as he says, an inability to tolerate or listen to the views of others, because naturally other people's views and perspectives are, are different from ours. When people establish ideas, views, and beliefs on what is good, what should be achieved, and what is the proper way to reach desired goals, they behave accordingly, and they observe corresponding traditions and customs, conventions. So their behavior may even be naive or irrational as a result. They may act simply out of an attachment to such traditions and customs, possessing only a faint understanding of the causal relationship 
of the factors involved. Hence, they lack a clear understanding of cause and effect. This is reflected in the lives of some religious, religious seekers who uphold various ascetic traditions and practices with great intensity, believing that such behavior will guarantee liberation, realization, or a passage to heaven. They then go on to criticize and look down on other people as a consequence of these established practices. So that's talking about sila uh, bhat upadana, or the attachment to conventions. And even though classically it's, of, it, it's often described around religious practices like bathing in the Ganges River, or uh, being a fire worshipper, or reciting mantras and such like, it, uh, Ajahn Chah would always emphasize that the sila uh, pataparamasa, the, the, the clinging to conventions, it's much broader in our lives than religious conventions, but uh, how we attach to local customs or a sort of national style of, of, of dressing or talking or food or, or you know, the money we, that we use, um, the conventions of you know, we, you know, uh, how, you know, how we think of something as being polite or being rude. He would uh, make, make it very clear that all of that is in the field of, of conventions and how we can... Uh, attached to, to conventions and judge people very, uh, very harshly. So he uh, he found it very interesting and talked a lot about it when he first came to the West and saw that you know, he'd met quite a number of foreigners who'd come to to his monastery in Thailand and he'd established the the International Forest Monastery for Westerners. So was, to some degree, he was acquainted with Westerners, but most of the Westerners he'd met were people who were interested in Buddhism, <laughs> coming to the monastery and wanting to, be, wanting to be his students. So being in a Western country for the first time, coming to England in 1977, and to, he went to France and, uh, and also up to Scotland, and uh, so that uh, it, was, uh, it was very illuminating to see how differently people operated from each other. And the, you know, the custom of shaking hands, he'd never, he'd never shaken hands with anybody. He'd, you know, he'd sort of seen it, in the movie, you know, seen it in the movies when he was a child, and and the, they would have movie shows going around the villages and dubbed into the local dialect. Um, uh, the uh, but uh, just being around a, a, a different different culture, different forms, different styles of of, of activity. It was it was intriguing, fascinating to him. So when he went back to to Thailand, uh, he was um, would often speak about that and uh, talk about the, you know the different customs and things that would be. Um, very polite and appropriate in Thailand, then it was seen as, as really kind of rude, like um, you know, taking your shoes off to go into uh, taking your shoes off to go into a church would be. He said they, they would be really upset. You know, if you go and visit a church, you have to keep your shoes on. So there, if you take your shoes off, you go into a Christian church. They think, no, 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 put your put your shoes on. <laughs> so that, uh, or uh, as I said, you know, sh uh, shaking hands or. Um, the uh, um, the way that people related to each other on the on the underground, you know, the getting into underground trains and such like, it was uh, he was intrigued, like, oh, this is very different. <laughs> and how you know, someone dressed as a Buddhist monk had you know, no particular relevance in the society, whereas in Thailand, if people all sort of get out of the way and say, "Oh, please, Lung Po, have a seat," you know, you get on a, a tube in London as a in your robes, and it's just you're just another blob on the tube, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing special at all. Yeah. So uh, uh, that was a cause for a lot of Dhamma teachings about Sila Pataparamasa. Yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, 
you know, in Thailand, the the, the head is very sacred, and so you'd never th- uh, you'd never touch somebody else on the head unless it's you know a, a, a child like your your nephew, or if it's some 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 person says you know please please bless me, Lumpur, and the you know the army general comes along and says you know. Please, please touch my head, Lumpur. So then you can touch someone's head. But uh, in the West, it's just you know that people can touch each other's heads without without any kind of um, uh, fear of, of social impropriety. So but when you think about it, a head is just like a cabbage. You know, why should it be? Why should why should you think of a uh, of a head as different from a cabbage? And you can almost feel, even just through a printed book, you can almost sort of feel that. So, Communal intake of breath when he gave when he said that in the Dhamma talk at Lopapol. A cabbage, a head, you know, treating someone's head like a cabbage. Well, it's kind of round and kind of kind of hard, but a bit soft on the outside. But not much difference really. Um, and then the last one. So at the same time, on a deeper level, such people are worried about the preservation of their cherished self, quote unquote, which is a fabricated concept. Although they do not really know what or where this assumed self is, they still lug it around, like a piece of luggage, (laughs) and protect it. And because they fear that at any moment the self may perish, they grab after whatever provides a sense of self-affirmation, however obscure such things may be. Life thus becomes restricted, and their well-being is shaped by the fortunes of this so-called self. So that's called Atavad Upadana, so the clinging to, uh, like Theravada, the way of the elders, Atavada is the way of the self, so Atavad Upadana. Um, also, he doesn't really mention it here, but um, one of the ways that I feel is helpful to understand Atavad Upadana, clinging to self, it's not like a philosophy of a self, or um, it's it's a uh, a lot of it is our story or the, your readiness to to say who you are and what your background is or what your work is or um, you know what school you went to or, or you know what uh, you know what, what retreats you've done or who <laughs> the, you know kind of uh, we we tell the stories of who and what we are our kind of narrative of, of our life our name our family you know, what town we were born in or you know our our life history and we can can. Um, uh, reaffirm uh, those the the value or the meaning or the importance of those things when you get together with old friends and you talk about uh, where you lived and who you knew and this person and that person and we constantly re, uh, revise and and re, uh, reiterate those those stories and even though we've all heard them hundreds of times so you know over and over and over we keep telling the same stories but it's a lot to do with just but, uh, boosting that sense of, of, of I, I am here, you're there, you know, we're here together, aren't we? Yes, we're here. Like in Eric Burns' book, I'm okay, you're okay. Like that, the surface level of, of discussion is you know revisiting old stories or or uh, uh, say shared experiences. But what you're really saying is, that, you know, I'm okay. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? Are we both okay? I think we're both okay. Okay, that's good. You know, but we're both all right. And it's just a, a way of, of uh, drawing closer and and, they, and giving a sense of, of uh, reassurance. But along the way, there's that um, drawing upon that that sort of self-affirmation and those stories. And and 
not realizing that that's a um, uh, say something we don't we don't need to do. It's just a, a a habit or a reflex. And one of the things I remember many many years ago, um, somebody in the sangha was asking me about um, uh, we're talking about this kind of area, and I said, well, one of the things that I find it really helpful is just just to not be interested in your own story. And uh, I remember it was. Uh, uh, one of the the the, uh, the nuns way back when she's not a nun anymore, but the, there's a sort of look over her face, like not being interested in my story. Wow, what a concept! <laughs> and I'm not not sort of criticizing or blaming her, but it was just that sense of my goodness, what a concept! Not to be fascinated with my own story. Yes, <laughs> and uh, you know, both. Wow, that's never never crossed the mind ever before, seemingly. But also, the, what a great idea! To, that's, well, why is my life so much more important than yours? And I, and I like to, to to do that when I if I'm in a graveyard, looking at the gravestones, and just you, if you go to a little Gadsden church and look at the gravestones or the the, the memorial plaques in the in the church, and uh, and sometimes it will just say you know. Uh, Dorothy Smith, born uh, uh, born 1762, passed away in 1805. Um, and, well, why is my story more important than hers? You know, what, what makes this life more important than that one? There's just a little mark on a grave, of a date of arrival, a date of departure, and a name. But that was a life, you know, this, uh, this human being lived her life and was here in Little Gadsden and is buried in this place. And uh, so what makes my story and my life so much more significant than this life? And just to sort of let that in. And because uh, and something in us is saying, yeah, but my life, it's my life and I'm alive now. Uh, but if you really let that in, it's like, well, yeah, but that person, they had their own life, their own loves and, and fears and hopes and, and activity and things they did and places they went. And, and so for them, their life is far more important than some random bloke who's going to be born in a couple of hundred years' time. <laughs> so uh, I, those kind of mental exercises I find are very, very helpful just to, to let that in. And uh, the um, uh, just uh, acknowledging you know, that how our own story can seem so important, so interesting. <laughs> just to ask that question, why? Why is this so special? What makes this so different? Or what, why give this a, a, an extra sort of level of importance? And just to, when that question is asked, just to let that settle in the heart and, and to feel an intuition, that, that in the heart which recognizes, of course, <laughs> how could this the story of this being, or you know, the events of this person's life, be any more real uh, than the, the events of somebody else's life? It's it it, uh, it, it can't be. It's just uh, uh, it's because this life is felt uh, acutely uh, in this moment. But uh, in in uh, the broader perspective, how could that be? More real or more significant than to somebody else's life, and something in I, I find something in the heart knows that. Just to listen to that, and there's a, a great sense of relief, like oh, <laughs> kind of letting go of, of fixation on your own, your own perspective, your own kind of uh, uh, 
uh, your own story, your own uh, your own narrative. So I, I call that a narrative self, or letting go of that. Um, not just self-view, the feeling of I or me or mine, but you know, me and my story and my and and um, and just not being so fascinated by that or making so much of it. Just uh, like, well, yeah, it's just <laughs> one set of <laughs> one set of events, but yeah, big deal. And then to listen to that in the heart goes, no, 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 don't say that, don't say that. This is really important, really special. What about what happened? They had that kind of spluttering. Uh, self-affirmation you go, oh, okay. that ego-centered habit doesn't like that but there's, behind that, beyond that there's a sense of ah, uh, it's just seeing this life in perspective with a, uh, and that's how, how realistic and how, how spacious and relieving that is so any thoughts, reflections? Yes, Sandra. I just want one thing like some water. Huh? One thing like some water. And Valado, do you need any water? Thank you. He said no. I said no. I use that as a typical nice reflection. Why is my life so important? Yes, no, why is my life more important than anybody else's? But yeah, I, and I, I do like to visit the, the uh, reading gravestones. and Some of them are quite epic in Little Gaston Church. <laughs> some of them are like, wow, she had a life. There's, a, there's a, uh, some of the ones, the, the, the larger inscriptions inside the church, some, some of them are really quite... Uh, 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 eye-opening the amount, the amount of stuff that people do, the amount of children they had, and and, um, and the, the kind of uh, things that went on. But um, just that sense of of how attached we get to to you know this life and and its events, and how much we make of that. And part of letting go of of self-view is. Uh, in a way, it's like recognizing that relational state, or that it's a shared life, that we uh, we're not really individuals <laughs> in in, in uh, many respects, and that that sense of of uh, opening the heart up to that that relational quality that that we're part of a a uh, uh, a web and an interrelated uh, web. That, uh, uh, and that that there's a, a quality of of, um, of peacefulness and, and ease that comes with that. There's a, a spaciousness that comes with that, and um, it's just one one of the aspects of letting go of uh, of self view. That uh, and the the um, with any of these aspects of the practice. It, Different parts of it are going to have different effects for different people. The conditioning that we have, so the the, the kind of, of of clinging. So you might be completely indifferent to your own stories. Oh, my story is really boring, and I'm not particularly interested in it already. <laughs> but there might be the a very strong feeling of that. But yeah, I am happy or I am unhappy. The 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 uh, the feeling of owning our moods or owning our, our mind states can be very very strong. So the different areas are where the 
eye-making and mind-making happens, it, ver- it, it, it varies from one place to another, one stream, <laughs> one stream of being to another, it varies. Uh, and so part of the, the process of meditation is getting to know wh- what areas that feeling of I and me and mine clusters around. So there might be that the sense of ownership is very, very light. That there, you know, there might be that there isn't any sense of, of owning or having or things don't really belong. That might be very close to the surface, very very obvious, very natural. But uh, <clears throat> but then there could be a, 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 a you know, in the same thing. Yeah, nothing is owned, but it's me that's hearing, me that's feeling, me that's thinking. <coughs> that that it's kind of that, that aspect of selfing is is very transparent. But this aspect is really you know, rock solid. So ah, uh-huh. so then bringing attention to the the areas where the where the attachment, uh, where the clinging happens, and then that's that's those are the areas that are most helpful to work on. So seven o'clock has come by already, so I, I will leave it there for today. Sadhu <laughs>